Hi guys, I just wanted to hop on before the episode and give a quick trigger warning. Um, We talk quite a bit about depression, mental health. There is a brief mention of sexual assault, a brief discussion of racial trauma, and quite a bit of talk about COVID trauma and exhaustion. So if any of those topics are triggering for you, feel free to skip this episode. All right, enjoy. Hi, all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we actually have Mike from Clean Cut Kid joining us. Hello. All the way from the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah, it's rainy Liverpool. Um, it's rainy here, too. I'm in Seattle. Um, so how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. Um, just got gotten to the end of a massive ball of projects, so trying to rest my ears and trying to put my brain on ice for a little while. Yeah, I'm sure. You guys have been putting out, I know you've only put out a few songs from what I'm assuming is an upcoming album or project or something, but they are probably my favorite songs that you guys have released. Oh, thank you. Um, which, just for listeners, if you don't know who Clean Cut Kid is, they're a band, I'll let Mike talk a little bit about it, but for me... It's a little bit of a fangirl moment because I've loved you guys for a long time. Uh, (laughs) And so it was very fun of me. Like I, when you responded to my DM, I was like, oh my God, how fun. So um, it's, they have great music, but I'll let you chat a little bit about the band and kind of what got you guys into the music industry, how you started and all that good stuff. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can talk. You'll be sick of my Scouse accents by the end of this podcast, probably. But um, (laughs) yeah, we, um, it's a bit of a crazy story. It's kind of a bit of a mad '80s dream record label story at the start because we, I was a session player, so I just um, was hired to play in all different people's bands, and I toured everywhere with different bands and played in in a lot of different studios, and that was my job. And my wife Evelyn was a session singer, and. We got set up on a date and our date was like, um, we went to watch Blair and Bombay Bicycle Club um, on our first date and it was pretty cool. But then we started working together on our own project, which was Clean Cut Kid. And um, yeah, we made two demos. We made Vitamin C and Runaway by ourselves in kind of half a day each, the first two singles. And then we played a gig in secret and then another gig a week later. And after the second gig, there was five heads of major record labels there and we got nine record deals the next day offered to us by major labels and then we holy cow yeah and then we signed a record we signed a really big record deal and i signed a really big publishing deal maybe like a month after that and then i think our fourth gig was like a glastonbury headline over here and we yeah yeah it was a matter of like months before we played like sold out royal albert hall it was just really that exact dream of like we got swept up at the second gig and signed a giant deal and in the like we just went so we didn't really do um anything in America we just came and signed our American deal with Interscope uh, so we just played a little gig in LA and we played CMJ in New York and we did a bit of South by but we didn't we never toured over there but in the UK it just went so fast for us we just we took off so quick because of all the money and the profile behind everything um so yeah that's how right. that's how it happened it was 
a bit of that. It was genuinely like an overnight thing, even though we'd all been playing for 15 years before we signed with this deal, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And is it just you and Evelyn now, or I'm assuming it's more than just you two? Yeah, it's a four, it's a four, it's four piece band and we're all like four best mates. So, uh, it's kind of, we've always split all the record deals four ways, but I, I, I write most of the music and now and again, Evelyn writes stuff with, so me and Evelyn co-wrote like Emily and stuff. And we, now and again, we can't, we co-write together, but, um, it's kind of my, I produce it all and I kind of play all the instruments really except uh, in the studio, except, except drums. Um, so, but all the record deals are kind of all split four ways because it's like a total, complete and utter band. They, they, they're not like hired guys, if you know what I mean. Um, so, right, right. But it's my, it's my vision, uh, kind of vibe. So a bit of a, um, functional dictatorship, we call it. It's like, uh, <laughs> everyone goes along with my creative kind of vision for it all. Um, but we're also best mates. So, you know, we just, we just enjoy every second of it really. Right. And so are you guys currently signed right now? Is that, we or did, have you guys gone independent? So we did, uh, we did the last, we did Pain Wave, the one that's got Emily on it. Um, and we did Pain Wave and Mother's Milk, which is still the third record still hasn't officially come out. We only, we only re- released it on physical copies and then COVID kicked in and the whole world just stopped. So we didn't, it was like a week be- or two weeks before the tour we had for the third record. So we just never released the third record digitally because we haven't been able to figure out how to put it out. Um, so, but we just wrote a fourth record in lockdown and we are just about to, I don't know, can I even say this? Should I say this? Well, we're just about to sign uh, for the first time because I really want to get to America because I really feel like kind of... Yes, my please, whole, my whole to America. <laughs> yeah, we we really intend to spend a lot of time there. Me and Ev write a lot in Nashville because the publishers that we're assigned to, they, are, they have a big office in Nashville. So we, we've been looking for an excuse to get the band over there. And now we're about to sign with a record label called Team Love, which is the label that Conor Oberst from Bright Eyes started. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so that's like the most perfect. It's this tiny label based like an hour. It's like an hour north of Manhattan in this place called New Paltz. And um, it's, it's, yeah, it's just the most perfect label for clean cut kids. So we're signing to those guys in the U S and then another, another indie label in the UK. So we'll, we'll, we'll be signed again, which will be weird, but I think cool. Yeah, no, that's so cool. Yes. Please come to <laughs> yeah. the U S because there are literally, I know a lot of people who like you guys and, um, that I, I keep doing this where I will find artists that are in other countries and then I like look for a tour for to actually see them and they don't tour over here and I'm no. like god damn it like yeah. <laughs> but yes no I I think that I, I remember even when I listened to your guys's music I, I you sound just like you're destined to be a very popular band if i and i don't mean that in the sense of like it sounds like popular music but your voice is so insane and it's so unique that i was just like this is like how does everyone not know who they are like it it really like 
confused my brain. Um, it was so focused. It was like the career was so focused to this tiny island here that um, we just right. tried to have a little storm in a bottle over here. Um, and, and then it was supposed to be like, then rain down on the on America once we'd already established here. But we just never got to that point because creatively I just couldn't stay on the major label. We had to we had to leave. So, um, so it's taken us this long to to decide on a plan to actually get back to the US. I think it's going to be 50-50 America and England, the, the, um, the stuff we're doing now. So it be interesting to see how the few gigs we did over there, it was just so impossibly made to be the whole like every crowd and every room we ever played to was just kind of like wow this like this band really works in in the american you know because my writing's kind of just from that americana old folk place and and that doesn't exist massively that doesn't exist over here massively yeah no i think that the the way that even if you put your um music in a playlist with a lot of American artists and you shuffle it, like you fit, you fit into the kind of subculture here. Yeah. Not necessarily like that pop music, but I, (laughs) not a big fan of pop music anyways, (laughs) but you fit into that subculture like really well. Um, But yeah, so I'd love to start chatting a little bit about your music and your lyrics have, quite a few um like centers of mental health talking about anxiety talking about um just a lot of that stuff and I think that it was apparent a little bit on your earlier work but I mean worrying and like good lord you've come so far I feel like hit like very like on the head of mental health yeah um which worrying is like my it was when it came out, it was like my anthem for like a solid month because I was like, I was in such an anxious spell. And I think specifically the line, I just lost another week to worrying. I was like, God, that's fucking accurate. (laughs) And the way that you can just spiral in your head and even, you know, you're, you lose a week to worrying and then you're anxious about the fact that you lost a week to worrying yeah. and now you're back to square one. Yeah. It's very cyclical. So I kind of wanted to chat with you about that and we'll get into specific songs, but um, I'm assuming that music is a coping mechanism for you just based on your writing. Um, and how does it help you is it do do you struggle with your mental health personally are you writing for other people or how does that work for you um I don't I don't personally I think I have the same struggles mentally as 95% of people I don't struggle with my mental health to the point where I found it affects the functioning of the things that I do like my life and my my relationship and my job and stuff um it's more the fact that uh, music is kind of like I'm from a housing estate in the outskirts of Liverpool in England and the place where I grew up, like um, a lot of my friends were kind of either killed or, you know, or went into kind of a life of crime. And it was from, I'm from a pretty like tough estate Um and I saw a lot of stuff at school and I saw a lot of crazy things happen growing up. Um, and what happens is you kind of just, um, you kind of just build this wall 
where like I'd walk out of school and somebody's head would get stamped out on a curb and then 20 minutes later I'd be sat at home eating my tea with my eating food with my parents and um I wouldn't even think about it I would never even like nothing nothing would get in and most people I know are quite like even though even though they're very, very deep and very connected and very uh, passionate and emotional, um, getting down to those raw levels of, I guess, um, uh, vulnerability, uh, that requires a lot. And usually for a lot of people that requires drinking drugs because, you know, even, even you'll look out, you know, I live right in the center of Liverpool and you'll look out on a night out, um, and you'll see all these people with their arms around each other drunk and they're, they're just, they're having the most amazing time of their life and they're so, they're so in touch with the mo- emotions and they're so kind of, they're so kind of tapped into, wow, this is great. Well, music is the only thing that breaks that thing down to me, for me. Like when I, like I can sit down to write a song at one o'clock on a Tuesday um, and I can be in tears but nothing else in my whole life will ever turn me there. It's just that music is this giant key that breaks that down, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, for sure. So that winds up being imprinted on the on the songs a lot. Um, and w- Worrying, for example, is uh, almost... Um, was is almost based on a single thing that happened where I was making the fourth record that we I was just talking about... Um, which, by the way, um, good lord, I'm worrying going on any albums. They're just they're just going to be like Beatles style singles that never go on. Oh, fun! Onto albums. Um, but I was making the record, and I wound up recording it three times because I made it by myself first, and then I made it digitally with the drummer, and then I made it fully back on tape on eight track tape again with the drummer. So by the time I'd got to the third time of making this record in lockdown not seeing anybody, no kind of social life, completely isolated. I, what happened was I was trying to make the record work and my wife was going out to meet her friend and she kind of walked into the studio and I was like sat here kind of with a guitar, like trying to make some part work that I'd been working on for months. And she said, oh, I'm going to meet whoever. And I was like, wow, you meet wow you meet, you've been meeting up with her a lot like for like a socially distanced walk or whatever and she's like no no I just meet up with her every Tuesday and it was like I literally had completely and utterly just lost that week like it was like I I thought back in my head and the seven days between when she'd gone out in the week before I just spent the whole week in a world of absolute hell. I couldn't hear what this record should be like. I was just in pain 14 hours a day trying to make it all work. Um, So I just stopped the record. I just shut the tape machine down and then I just sat in the next room and I just picked my guitar up and I just wrote Worrying all the way through. Um, because, oh my God. Because I was like, I'm going to document this and make it, make, an, or make it autobiographical. And then I just spent a whole week recording worrying and then we just put worrying out straight by itself before I even came back to that record. <laughs> so it was like, if you're asking me about music being cathartic, um, I kind of wrote that record as a way of soothing myself enough to be able to approach my own album again, if you know what I mean. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, that's first of all, that's fucking insane. Cause that <laughs> yeah. song, like that song, uh, has so much intentional verbiage in it yeah. and 
you wouldn't think that that would be something that could get like written in one day, just like sit down, write it through. Yeah. Just I mean, kind of like spit it out. Yeah. I mean, I always write them all. They pretty much are just most of them. Are, like, for example, the uh, outro of Emily, you feel lost and alone, like the only one that knows this. That was written in the time it took for me to sing it. Like I literally played, the, <laughs> I played the band's loop um, that we just recorded playing. And I just sat with a pad and pen. And in the time it took me to get across the loop, I'd written the outro. So like I, I do most, most of the good songs happen in an hour tops kind of thing. So, right. Yeah. yeah it's just... And I think that's a lot of times, even if you're talking about writing an essay, or writing poetry or whatever. Yeah. A lot of the times when you sit there and you agonize over it, like the worse it gets, yeah. <laughs> the longer that you're sitting there, the, you just keep fucking it up and then you read it through and you're like, okay, well now I hate all of it. Now yeah, yeah. I just change just that. Get, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's wildly interesting because that is like, that's even interesting because I've had experiences like that Um but more centered with anxiety. And that's why I think the song like really struck a chord with me specifically was I've had situations where I've literally spent my entire week going 90 miles an hour and like being so busy and so stressed out and so anxious. And then it's one of those things where like someone will say, Oh yeah, like we have this on Monday or I'll talk to you on Monday. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like that's tomorrow. Like, How, where did my week go? I didn't do anything that actually made me happy. I didn't do anything that felt fulfilling. I quite literally spent seven days just like in a tornado of like stress and chaos and anxiety. Um, And I think, uh, I don't know how your guys' experience was with lockdown, but for me, I'm in Seattle, Washington, um, and... I was in college, so I lost my housing and my job and everything. So I moved home with my parents and I went from having this like wildly busy schedule to literally sitting in my childhood bedroom. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, okay, I guess I'll do my homework. And I felt like I was in fifth grade and it was just like the weirdest thing in the world. Yeah. And it was very bizarre to go from kind of that that 90 miles per hour, you lose an entire week because you're so wrapped up in whatever you have going on to then having everything be so slow that I almost had too much time to think and too much time to process. Um, But now that it's picked back up again, I've found myself, especially now that we're hitting like the one year mark where we're coming around to like, it's, I think for a lot of people, it's bringing up a lot of memories of, what it was like at the beginning, which for those listening, we're recording this on March 14th. So we're, we're quite literally, I think this was the one year anniversary in the U S at the very least for like lockdown. Like, I think this was the day that we actually went into it. Wow. I think it was the 23rd, 23rd here, but we're we're very close to it. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, I think that a lot of times it's like, for me personally, looking back on it, I'm almost finding myself like, longing a little bit for the beginning of it because I was like I had so much time yeah and I just had so much time to like not do anything Mm -hmm. and now that I know that things turned out okay in the sense of like 
I'm, I made it through and I pushed through it. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have spent that time actually diffusing and like trying to come down from a constant cycle of life being mm-hmm. this 90 miles per hour experience. Yeah. And weirdly, um, like from a creative point of view, what, uh, and people have really <laughs> been surprised when I've said this almost, but like, um, my, the way I was thinking is if I hit whenever this ends, be it six months, nine months, a year, 18 months, like whenever this, whenever the world kind of comes back to life again, um, if I don't have something solidly tangible to, f- to show for it from a creative point of view, no matter how I've experienced the whole time, whether I've dealt with a load of things in my life that I should have, whether I've gotten to all of those kind of jobs that I'd never get to, like how, however I've dealt with it, if I don't have this tangible piece of creativity, i.e. like a new record in my hand, I am not going to, when the world fires back up, I, my, my mental health won't survive having a kind of black hole of a year creatively. Um, so I kind of, by the time I wrote Worrying, which is post this record that, that I've now, I've now finished now, um, I was almost doing the opposite of what you're saying there. And I, and now, now I've got that, that's great to have this record deal on the horizon and everything, but also I I really crippled myself with so much um self-inflicted anxiety about um I would like make wake up and make a 35 point list of the things that I had to do that day and I'd be so disappointed if I hadn't nailed the list but nobody else was no no one else was watching the list like I was like my own horrible terrible boss if you know what I mean um so it's been crazy. It's been it's been the strangest time. It's been a yeah, and isn't that so weird too? I'm the exact same way with lists. I will put it, you know, and we always make our lists too big. Yeah, uh, they're always way too long. And I do the same thing where I'm like, okay, I need to get all this done today. And just logically, time wise, like there's literally not enough time in my day to do that. No chance. And. No one else is holding me to that list. No one has a gun to my head saying, you have to finish this. But I'm sitting there like holding a gun to my own head being like, oh my God, I have to get it done. And Mm -hmm. then if I end my day and I don't get it done, I feel stressed. I feel chaotic. I tend to kind of rag on myself and feel like even though I accomplished 15 of those things, which is huge, I don't celebrate that at all. I just shit on myself for the fact that I didn't get to 35 or whatever. You know yeah. what I mean? Like there's yeah. no, there. it takes away your, it also, yeah, it takes away from your um, accomplishment as well. Cause you know, I heard someone say, um, I was listening to a podcast talking about organization and how to be more productive. And I wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't what the podcast was about. It's a comedy podcast. And they just like had a weird little segment about it. And the guy was saying that, his strategy is to do like one, like do one of his priorities a day right? compared to a list of like 20 things where he was like, I don't need to do 20 things today. I'm going to prioritize, look through my list, prioritize it and set one thing to do today. And if I get it done and I feel like I have enough left in me, then I can move on to the next priority. And if not, then we're happy with what I did today. Yeah. And 
that concept is so wildly foreign to my brain. Yeah. <laughs> I like even hearing that I was like, God, that sounds terrible. Like yeah. it's, it's, I would just drive myself crazy. It's like if you're at work and you have a boss who's kind of pushing, pushing all these, um, you know, objectives for the, for your, for your time on you. Or like if you're at college or you, and you have all these assignments that say you need to get X, Y, and Z done within the space of a term or whatever, like, as soon as that stuff rolls off, even when the whole world has rolled off because we're like switched off, you just replace you just replace those authorities with pure anxiety. You just replace those authoritative figures with your own um, worst enemy. It's um, right. It's been rough. I mean, I I don't know anybody. I know so many people who are kind of like if they have one day off. They take it so easy. They just have the most incredible because they work so hard. And now they've had a year off. Within the space of a couple of days, they were absolutely, they were just sunk. They had no idea how to survive, even though they were like Mr. Mr. Party on the day that they used to have off. Now it's like, now right. there's no days on. I don't know yeah, anyone. there was no balance. No, no. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, no, I, I did the same thing in the sense of... Um, I also have this really dry feeling when I don't have something creative going on in my life. Yeah. I recently was in a job where it was a very like mundane, here's your routine. Your routine will not change. And there was nothing creative. There was nothing that felt fulfilling. And that was why I started the podcast because I was like, I have to do something <laughs> that is actually creative and mentally stimulating. Yeah. But during COVID, that was something, well, I guess we're still in COVID, but during like the first year of lockdown, it was like, I would find little areas, even like I started embroidering yeah. and it was like, I have to do something yeah. where I have a product that I can like, and I remember when I finished like my first embroidery hoop, I like took a picture of it and I was like, I did this in the <laughs> middle of a pandemic. Like yeah. I made an embroidery hoop and I like felt so good about myself because I was like, I finally did something. But yeah, I, if I have a day off of work, like pre this whole situation, I could sit and hang out and watch TV for hours and be fine yeah. and just let my brain calm down. But in the time where I was having so much time off, instead of sitting there and I was having to really be cautious and correct myself and say, okay, Fina, you have time off today. Maybe let's do yoga or let's do something that might be, you know, helpful for you to calm down Nourishing because I you. literally ha was creating these schedules that I didn't need to create. I think I was also looking for a little bit of structure, but I was, I had nothing other than like, I was still in classes. So I had classes that I had to do, but they were really easy because it was the beginning of <laughs> COVID yeah. and none of my professors knew what they were doing and everyone <laughs> was really stressed out. So it was very easy. It was my last semester of college and it was like the easiest semester thus far. But, um, I literally was creating schedules of like, Watch The Walking Dead for an hour. <laughs> Go on TikTok for an oh, hour. Because I was funny. like, I have to have something that actually like sets my day up. Yeah. Or else I'm just going to like sit here and either feel totally just worthless for the entire day. Or yeah. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to doom scroll and look through news articles about how this is taking out our population. Yeah. And it's going to make me lose my mind. Yeah. And so I was literally sitting there being like, Make banana bread. <laughs> do my embroidery. Because I was like, I have to have some structure to my day. I can't do this. Yeah. And it's – but it was exhausting. And yep. it still is exhausting. I think the whole year was very traumatic. And 
none of us have had a break from it. No. We're still just getting pummeled by, like, the media and the trauma that's in the media. Mm -hmm. And it was a very weird collective traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't don't really – I don't do the social media thing, really. Um, I came off Facebook eight years ago, and I, uh, when Facebook was still a thing, I, I came off it maybe three years before everybody else. Um, and then, I, and then I haven't maybe for seven, eight years had a personal Instagram. So, so the band's the band's Instagram is just like a, um, just like a news platform to be like either this is what's going on today or this is what's coming next, like musically or live or whatever. Um, so I just don't do it. I don't, I just don't know what goes on in the virtual world kind of thing. It's just not even, um, it's not even a thing. So that, that has definitely helped me because I've watched the people who used to fill all of their spare time up with, with scrolling anyway. Um, and they've really, really suffered now. You know, they've, um, just having when you get six hours a day to be able to just scroll through monotonous comments and also just I mean I this is going to probably make me seem like a luddite like so far out of the kind of loop but I I just cannot believe how ridiculously like loaded and attacking like every set of comments everywhere are like even if the subject has nothing to do with any anything that would ever divide any opinion i just i mean they used to be keyboard warriors and they used to be i mean i I kind of feel like when i do tap in to social media for like a very rare kind of 20 minutes per week or whatever um like it scares the shit out of me to even see i don't even think the word troll um like applies anymore because i just i really think like 95% of really active kind of comment warriors um are just very very um it's 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 very just inhumane it's just everybody is just so combative and attack attacking everyone um it's so far from the real world of like having friends and family and people you love around you and just being like, yeah, let's just like, you know, it's never been cool to just be nice kind of thing. But you know, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, and it's that makes me seem like some like frightened old man, but I, I just, I, I just don't read one comment. Um, it, it blows my head how horrible people yeah. are. No, I think that's valid. I, I was the person who loved to scroll. And you're completely correct where when this happened, I went from having an hour that I was on social media a day or two hours to now I'm spending eight hours on Twitter. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. And that was one of the reasons why I built my little fun (laughs) schedule with time for watching The Walking Dead. Because I was like, I which also watching The Walking Dead in the middle of a pandemic is the worst idea you could (laughs) ever have. I had to stop like a month in because I was like, I'm living this. This I mean, this is terrifying. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I was one of the people where I kind of, especially with a lot of the social justice stuff and a lot that's been happening in the U.S. with police brutality and with um, a lot of that kind of stuff. And then on top of that, um, I grew up in a Christian environment. Right. 
very much so in the church. And just in the last year and a half or so, I exited that entire community, that entire space. And what that means is a lot of my social media is still filled with people who that is their reality and that those are their beliefs. Right. And so I would hop on Facebook or I'd hop on Instagram and I'm very justice driven and I'm also a very protective person. And so I would see people saying terrible things about other humans. And I would just like my mama bear instinct kind of thing would come out. And yeah. I was like, well, now it's my oper- like it's my job to protect these people and stand up for them no matter what the context of that was, if that was someone making a homophobic comment, I was like, okay, I have to correct that. And like you said, it got to the point where it was like the responses, I would try to be as respectful as possible. And then I'd get a response like with some terrible comment. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I was trying to like communicate and be healthy and like have this like great line of communication, try to open an opportunity for learning. And like, I would then, it would fire me up so bad. And there was also an interesting subculture within ex Christians, (laughs) people who kind of have left the church of there's been this, which I'm I'm actually going to have an episode to talk about this probably with my sister, but, um, there's been a subculture within Christianity of people who are no longer Christians using their social media to publicly like bash people. And it started as accountability and then it slowly made its way into just like bitterness and anger. And it did start in the right, the right place, but it has like gotten really just like vicious and angry. Yeah. And at the beginning of lockdown was kind of when it started. And so I was like on board, like, yeah, fuck these pastors, like, ha, <laughs> just like ready to go. Yeah. And then it just like, it is very exhausting to be angry all the time. Yeah. yeah. It takes a lot out of you. And I was having to have people in my life say, hey, you're angry all the time right now. Yeah. And if someone cuts you off on the freeway compared to you being like, oh, what the heck? You have this like, anger inside of you right now because you're so constantly activated and you're reading all these things and you're on Twitter and you're on Instagram and you're going to the comments and you're fighting everybody off. And it's like, you need to take a step back. And so I just recently deactivated my Twitter and I'm deactivating my Instagram like this week until the release of the podcast. Cause then I have to hop on and do like promotion and all graphics and shit. But, um, I was just like, I can't do this. Like I'm spending hours on Twitter and I've, I've gone through phases of COVID where I'm, I'm like within this time period where I'm really good at monitoring my social media and I might get really intentional about it. Mm-hmm. And then something happens in the media. That's some really big thing. And here it's been like every five seconds, there's some huge bombshell that just mm-hmm. dropped where yeah. we had the election and that was fucking huge. Yeah. And then we had, you know, even the f- governor of New York just got accused of sexual assault. And so now we're dealing with that. And yeah. it's just like there's so many things. And there is beauty, I think, especially at the beginning of lockdown with social media. It gave you a sense of connectedness mm-hmm. and community um, and just finding like, okay, other people are going through this and it's not just me. And that's been the most unique thing about I think this entire experience is like quite literally the whole world is going through it. It's not just like 
your isolated experience. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like shit, I had to be on social media during the election. And I was like, I have to stay updated because I honestly trust Twitter more than I trust like the news because (laughs) that's actually tends to be a little bit more in the middle. Mm. Um, And once Biden won, I was like, okay, I need to take a break. Cause like I celebrated we had a full – I had a full fuck Donald Trump party. Yeah. We drank champagne. It was a whole thing. But then it was like, okay, now I need some time because this has been – and I think everybody, a lot of people felt that where we had four straight years of like almost like a trauma of having him as a president. Yeah. And then we all were like, okay, Biden still kind of sucks, but at least we can take a deep breath. <laughs> where yeah. it's like we can take a breath and then we'll go to work again tomorrow. But like we need to like mm. – we're all so exhausted. And so – there's just been it's been hard to balance i think i think for everyone yeah and it's also like um just uh balance is the word because freedom of speech is great and also being able to develop an opinion from a lot of a wider a wider group of people than your own feedback loop and the people built around you kind of thing that that's all great but um like my problem with it is just the um like very few things especially when it comes to like attacking other people's opinions or kind of per- projecting your own anger and aggression towards anybody else e- even even if it's not personal even if it's just for something that they feel passionate about like in the real world in inverted commas um in the real world that has consequences and um, which is why there's little ecosystems, for example, like the city that I live in now in Liverpool, where there's a lot of very liberal, but very educated and very creative people that I kind of surround myself with. And they have a great mix for me of being like, trying to stay as informed as they possibly can with truth, because obviously we know that kind of fake news spreads eight times faster than real news and all this stuff. So they they have, they have try and give themselves the best fighting chance of knowing that stuff, but also bearing in mind, like, there's consequences in the real world for those kind of angry actions. Um, and the number of... And this is how I kind of live my life, but, like, even with, like, even being a musician, even communicating with fans who have kind of, like, shouted stuff at me via, like, why haven't you released this this way? And what's going on? And where's this thing? Like, I know that there's going to be some arc at which we'll be both stood in a gig venue face-to-face after a gig, and I'll be like, okay, what was your problem with me releasing this thing? And it's like, that's not in an, in an aggressive way, like, oh, I'm going to kind of knock you out if you if you kind of offend me here, but it's just like, it's such a different thing to address somebody eye-to-eye and actually have a conversation in any room. Um I really think um, the biggest situation, the the biggest problem with the whole online situation is just removing the consequences because you can take that anger to the, to a tiny, tiny peak where it's like, even you don't know if half of your, what you're, not you, but even, what I'm saying is even you personally don't know what your, um, where your boundaries lie with how you feel about this, but you're so impassioned and so enraged and then the and then it's consequence free that I might as well just attack this person, and you know there's no context like um you know 
there's just no context. A lot of these people shouting and screaming and coming across like the most obnoxious, horrible, destructive people then just switch their phone off and they've got four kids and they're like amazing mums and they and they're so supportive and amazing to everybody yeah, in their it's lives. Fucking weird. It's it 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 it's so inhuman. I just don't even um yeah, I, I'm just I'm I for one I'm hoping that it implodes on itself. I really hope that like uh, there's a generation kind of below me. I don't know how old you are, but I'm I'm in my mid thirties, and I really hope that like the next the current teens. I really hope the saturation gets to the point where they where they're just like, wow, it's too much, and they can. Yeah, I hope it collapses. It has to collapse in on itself because no one's gonna um, consciously decide this will be better for all of our souls if we do this. It, it has to be like. The, the generation carrying it forward with its new pa- platforms and whatever the next TikTok is and whatever the next, like, explosive platform is, that generation has to become, like, wow, I... We... This is really a lot less um, nourishing than going for a walk in a field. Yeah. You know, yeah. like... Some, I, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, you're fine. I'm, I'm 22, so I'm... Right. I'm you. ironically right in the I don't I think I'm like right on the cusp of either being a millennial or Gen Zer. Nice. I'm like I, I don't think I made the cut. I'm nice. in the there's a gap in between the two. Yeah. There's like two years that didn't make either cut. So yeah. I don't think I have one. Nice. Um which is cool. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah it's and I think it's hard too because it's like it it's shit because there are so many cool benefits to it like marketing wise and yeah. like even I'm a big TikToker and I hate that about myself, <laughs> but I really like it. Yeah. And um, the thing that I think is so interesting, it's terrifying, first of all, because I've given up on the idea that I have any privacy. I think the the government knows everything and I'm okay with that. And I've accepted <laughs> it because the, the algorithms on TikTok, the way that it gets to know you is terrifying, mm. but also like wildly cool. Yeah. Um, in a really scary way, but I think it's really interesting because I was trying to explain TikTok to someone because there's a lot of people who like are very anti it. And I was trying to explain it to someone. I was explaining there are different sides of it. And so you can get stuck on the really conservative asshole side. Nice. Yeah. And if you get stuck there for a day, it sucks. And it's really hard to get out of. Because you basically have to like the right videos to get out of that subculture. Wow. But within that, and that's what I mean, there's like, it's not even sides because there's like, there's not two. There's like millions of little tiny, it's almost like if you think of it like a high school and you have all your little high school clubs. Yeah. You've got a few kids that are in the, you know, the music club and you've got a few kids that are in the really niche, like anime club or the cooking club and you've got all these different little things and you can kind of make your way into those communities. And for me, especially during lockdown, I kind of found a community that I, I was, I didn't have a community cause yeah. I had lost all my friends in college, like moved back home. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. I don't have anyone to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found these like little communities where like, um, I realized that I was suffering from an eating disorder and I didn't know that. And I figured out via TikTok <laughs> and I was like, wow. huh? Cause there were people, there are people on there that are mental health professionals 
that will say, are you struggling with this? Are you struggling with this? Are you struggling with this? You may be suffering from this. And like, you might want to get that checked out. And I was like, oh shit. And then there's like, you know, I have a lot of internalized homophobia because of the environment that I grew up in and being exposed on TikTok to so many various, uh, you know, dynamics of a relationship or of sexuality was like huge for me. Cause I was like, okay, it's normalizing it in my brain. Yeah. But then at the same time you pop in the comments and it's hell. It's hell. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we should just eliminate the comments. Just eliminate the comments. That, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. really think that that would help if we just nixed the comments, but yeah, it's, it's something where I think at the very least, I know a lot of my generation is acknowledging that they have the ability and the power to turn it off if they'd like to. Yeah. And I think that um, when you're in high school or you're in middle school, you are you don't feel like you can step away from social media because mm-hmm. it's such a large part of being in the cool crowd or fitting in. But once you step into adulthood a little bit and have a separation from that, you can kind of look back and say, okay, well, I have people in my life who I really care about who are going to be in my life, whether or not I like their photos or not. Yeah. And so I can take a step back from this because that's what's going to be best for my mental health. And I think that's the other thing that's been huge in the past few years is the normalization of um, self-care. And I think it's been normalized in multiple ways and in ways that I don't necessarily appreciate there's been the whole like put on a face mask and like that's self-care. And it's like, no, it's not. That's skincare. Yeah. That's something different. <laughs> but like self-care is actually sitting there and trying to do something that's going to better your brain. And I'm not saying that taking time to do a spa day can't be helpful and relaxing, but I would argue that setting boundaries with your friends or your family members is much more self-care than putting on a face mask. And mm-hmm. so, and I'm talking about a face mask as in skincare, not as in a mask to protect COVID. <laughs> yeah. That is, that is caring for everyone else. That yeah. is being other centered. Um, but yeah, it's just like, I think a lot of us are realizing that we can put ourselves uh, first at times and that that doesn't actually mean that we're selfish. Mm-hmm. That means that we're taking care of ourselves. Yeah. And I think when you grow up, at least like my high school experience, like in my middle school experience, you do taking care of yourself, especially in a religious context, taking care of yourself was considered like selfish. Yeah. And I've actually had a lot of interactions with pastors and stuff where there is conversations about the word that, that the word self care is not biblical and things like that, which is just absolute bullshit. But yeah. um, you kind of get taught that you, you need to keep sacrificing yourself for others and that you need to, even you get taught as a kid, not even in a religious context, but just in a human context that if you have something that can help someone else, you owe it to that person to help them no matter if it hurts you. Mm. Like you have to help others and you have to have this like, you know, you're going to change the world and Mm -hmm. yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation with my, my grandpa recently who is, in his late eighties and is, um, he's a very, very, very Hispanic man. Um, and grew up in a very intense context with an immigrant family. And we were having conversations cause I was, I'm job searching right now. And I was like naming all these jobs that are very intense and very emotionally draining. And he was like, you know, you could just find a job that you think is fun. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
but like, I want to help people. And he was like, yeah, but you can't help everyone. And anyone who told you you're going to change the world is wrong. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit. Okay. And he was like, you can, you can literally just do something that you think is fun. Mm-hmm. And that's fulfilling for you. Even if that isn't, you know, oh, Fina, the world changer who, yeah. you know, did all this stuff and mm-hmm. now everyone is better because of her. And he was like, you, or you can do that for a few years and acknowledge that maybe it's just going to be for a little bit and yeah. then you're going to switch. And I think there's a lot of like, just kind of that. I don't well, know. I think that we're, a lot of people are having that change of mind where they're realizing I can prioritize myself and that's okay. Yeah. And and I think from, from my, per, my personal experience of that is that um, the music vibe be it like music being my whole completely whole consuming life that's just swallowed me up since I was kind of a baby you know that's been omnipresent but then that then turned into a career and I've kind of never had any other job except except making music and so that's cool and I had a massive area where like when I started to write the songs that we're talking about here where they're so autobiographical and they're so um Sometimes they're about the massive struggles that my people really close to me are going through, like Emily's about my best, uh, mine and my wife's best friend. Um, So sometimes they're huge, um, they're kind of shots at empathy. Um, But what happens is you, a lot of the time that people spend directly helping other people, you spend that time and energy turning into like an emotional blueprint that you can then spend your time applying to a song. Um, and for a little while, from I guess like Painwave up until kind of halfway through the fourth record now, um, I've spent that whole time kind of beating myself up about that whole thing because like, for example, my my granddad just died maybe a month ago um, and we've got a song called Gene um, and that Gene was his wife and I wrote Gene... Um, which is a big fan favourite in, in Liverpool. And I wrote that song about the stuff that he'd said at the at the eulogy when he spoke. I wrote the song about that, that those things. And now I've just written a song about him called Golden Ribbon. Um, and now he's died, but that's kind of, uh, which kind of says, the chorus of that's like, um, it's it says like, she, it's about his wife, Jean. It's like, she's sending down a golden ribbon, a ticket on a plane that never lands. You wrote the book on living what they call dying, you call taking her hand and kind of like rephrase the kind of thing because he he was um, diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and it was kind of, I did my usual thing that I always do where I just repurpose the whole situation into something much more poetic and beautiful. So hopefully one day my giant family who've lost the kind of two heads of their whole family, which are my nan and granddad, um, they can listen to this song and all of a sudden like my granddad's death in their head will be just like my nan sending down a golden ribbon for him to grab 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 hold of and that's what that's the you know so basically what i'm saying is um that is the way that i can help the most people like so there's no amount of hands-on support that i can give anybody that is going to do the amount of work that emily does if you know what i mean because like yes so many people message me every single day saying this song has kind of saved me almost you know it's kind of um so the day that i realized that 
the most supportive thing I could possibly do was to carry on, <laughs> carry on just um, kind of on this very seemingly lonely journey into like mine and all the emotions of the people around me to kind of spell it out in this poetic world. Uh, that Having that realisation was the kind of the very start of my self-care really because um, making albums used to be like self-harm almost like making records used to be like 21 hours with no sleep and not washing myself and not like and not eating like just five or six skipped meals um and just hyper focused because all that's got to come out is the record and uh it doesn't work that way now like I now feel like every single time I sit down to like write one line of something it's like this is me starting to help everybody else at the same time as helping myself, if you know what I mean, which may be a bit, which may be a bit egotistical now I'm saying it out loud, <laughs> but you know, it's helped, it's helped my no, process. I think, so. Yeah. I think it, uh, it's beautiful when you're able to find where your self care and your care for others kind of align into one thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I'm sorry to hear about your granddad that especially during this time period with how isolated everything's been, I'm sure that's been uh, very hard, but um, I also did want to touch on Emily. (laughs) So that's a, that's a perfect segue there. Cool. Um, And I was actually quite literally just going to say that I think the thing with Emily, which if listeners haven't heard the song, the song is called Emily. So that's why we're referring to it in the way that we are. But if you haven't listened to it, I would highly suggest listening to it. Um, it's one of your older songs. It's not, it's not, uh, super new, but I think why that resonated with so many people is because ironically, despite the fact that you quite literally have the name of the person that you're referring to as the chorus, (laughs) um, as a listener, it, I think for me, that song came into my life in a very specific time period when I was, I was going through a sexual assault investigation and I felt so alone. And I think that that song kind of sound, I think to everyone listening to it, if they're going through something, it it sounds like you guys are singing it to us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's kind of like, you feel like you have someone that is kind of listening or understanding or empathizing with your experience and, um, I think it's so funny too, cause you can, logically you can listen to it and you know, it's for Emily. Yeah. Her name is over and over in the song, Yeah, but then you can kind of say, okay, you know, I have this, you know, safe spot a little bit. And then mm-hmm. ironically, like, good Lord, you've come so far, which is came out quite a while after Emily did. Yeah. Um, came into my life once again at a very strategic and kind of perfect time where I had been in a very codependent abusive relationship where I didn't really think for myself and it kind of came out like right when I was starting to step out it had been like a year since that relationship had ended but I was finally kind of like on my own feet and a little bit like okay, I can do this on my own. And I think specifically like 
the I'll, I'll just read a part of the lyrics here. Um, I don't have to tell you nothing. You can listen to your own advice. You've got a brain between your ears, two feet. You can stand on them and go anywhere you like, which is my favorite part of the entire song. Because I think that coming from a place where I was in a very codependent uh, time to then being able to recognize, no, I can listen to my own advice. I do have thoughts. I'm intelligent. I can listen to them. I can tackle this on my own. I can do it. Uh, was encouraging to me as well. Yeah. And um, I'd love to know, is there a connection between those two songs or do they just kind of fit beautifully just because? Uh, well, there is there is a massive connection to, between the two of them because um, they are both direct uh, responses to uh, difficulties in with mental health. So the reason, like... Um, I know, you know, the songs always touch on people's, I guess, people's struggles because they're kind of written from my struggles almost. But the Good Lord, for example, uh, was written about my wife, Evelyn, and she she has struggled, she, which she's, she's public about, but she, she struggled with depression. Um, and those lyrics, for example, where we are... We work together, we're in a band together, we live together. Um, obviously, we're married, we live together. Um, and we spend every waking hour doing everything and we are caused so, so close that the first thing... I was a, I wanted to write a song because when her mental health dipped a couple of months into lockdown, um, obviously, because all the support networks around her and her schedule and all of the structure in her life that she'd built in order to help the patterns not develop that kind of sent her downhill from a depression point of view, which, which, um, funnily enough, centered around self-care at the moment. She let any level of self, like my moment to sleep is not kept up in the moment. Just every level of self-care she has to maintain up at a certain point or she will begin to start feeling like start getting ill. Um, and I wanted to write Good Lord purely as the tiniest message of look how far you've come from the girl that I met years ago who kind of was torn apart by these mental difficulties and then was experiencing this dip, which instantly she was dealing with in an amazing way because she was getting help right away, right away getting support, recognising what was going on. So I wanted to write this song and the only way that I could try and like um, delete myself out of the song from a patronizing point of view, from a non-patronizing point of view, was to open with the lines, I don't have to tell you nothing, you can listen to your own advice. I was like, let's just declare in the chorus, you've got a brain between your ears, two feet, you can start, like, it literally like, let's just delete myself from the song right away, like right. in the sense that like, don't, don't take this song as a, oh, um, you know, now Mike is saying to me, I can do this, then I'm going to be able to do this. Because this is like, this is nothing to do with me. All of your personal progress is your own. And that's that's right. probably why those lines cut straight through to you. Because essentially like, um, right. because there's just too many songs out there where the actual, you know, person who wrote them is kind of trying to say, Oh, hold on! You can do this, and you can do that. It's just like, what relevance does my experience of all this stuff have? It's kind of just like, 
all I'm saying is I've watched you go through all this stuff and look how far you've come um, in my yeah. eye, in my eyes. So it's, <laughs> which is the same as what Emily was because our friend Emily had a lot of problems and they all culminated in one kind of big sort of breakdown. And um, the day after that happened and she had to be, she had to leave leave where she was living for a while and kind of just take shut her life down while she built while she re- rebuilt herself. Um, the day after that happened, I wrote the first verse and the chorus for Emily, and then I um, just gave the song to Evelyn and was like, "Look, she's your best friend. It would be crazy for me to finish this song by myself. Um, it'd be so egotistical for me to finish it." So, and Ev just sat down and. It, in the space it took me to kind of drink a coffee, she'd written the, I try to get you on the phone when you're lonely, Emily, I guess she'd, she'd nailed that second verse. And I was like, wow, that's so, that's so perfect. Um, which is why that outro came so fast because, um, I did that same process that you are resonating. That's resonating with you there in good Lord is I tried to be, ultimately empathetic and try and try and think if you're suffering with be it anxiety or depression or whatever's going on um let me just bounce on some of the most like missaid unsupportive things that you think people are people are going to say and that which is why it's kind of like and don't let anybody tell you it's a rough patch it's like emily i can see that you've had more than enough of that it's like even the um, Emily, I, I can't wait to see the old smile shining through is like just the thing of like, personally here, I would just like to see you happy again, but I'm not going to tell you, you know, just, just recognizing if you had a broken leg, we wouldn't be, <laughs> we wouldn't be kind of struggling to understand what you're going through here. Like you are, you are ill, which is like, which is why the big gang vocal thing, the big response being like, there's a hole in your heart was like this thing of like, if you, if we could all just, um, recognize that you have a hole in your heart here, like metaphorically, where all this love that we all feel for you has just been leaking out because you can't feel it. Um, then if we all recognize that, then we'd all treat you the way we should be treating you. And that's that you are ill because you are ill. Um, and right, so, and there'd be validation in that. Exactly, exactly, and that's yeah, that's the uh, and because I've dealt with depression um, f- with Evelyn with my with my life and, and actually dealt with is the wrong term because I have experienced from a third party my wife going through depression. Right. The the only thing you can possibly do. So obviously the oh, but it's going to be great, and look how great life is now. We've got all this money in the bank. We've got this like. The worst thing you can possibly do is be like, but look, we have the same life and I'm fine. Like that's Yeah. That that's that's number one worst. But but then even after that, to then recognize, oh, I I can see what's wrong with you. And I think that I because it's not happening to me, I think this is why I'm nailing it right now and you're not. Like Everything you say comes across like that to somebody that's in that depressive position. So do not say, well, you know, if we just did this, 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 and this. It's like, no, the only thing you can say is you are ill and whatever you need, I'll be here for you. And so 
if you want me to just leave you alone or you want me here or you, whatever you want, I will be here. But until then, you tell me what the strategy is and you tell me what you need and we'll just we'll just go from there. Like that's the absolute only way because it's, it's so unrelatable to people, you know, even, even who know you very well. So that's what I tried to do in both of those songs, if you know what I mean, which is why I think that you've recognized it because they both resonated. Yeah, and I think... I think you touched really well on specifically like the um hang on my brain's trying to think. Yeah, the don't let anyone tell you it's a rough patch and then even the um you know you're sick and tired of the line you've got your whole life ahead of you. Yeah. I think that there's like validation and that's probably why it resonated with so many people was people who had never had their mental struggles validated had them validated through the song. Yeah. And because it's written in a perspective of like friend to friend you as the listener can be like, maybe I don't have friends in my life who are validating me, but I can listen to this and I can feel like their friend and mm-hmm. I can be validated. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, from my personal background, like I had, I think once again, growing up in a Christian environment, there's a, there's a lot of uh, excusing mental issues and kind of shoving them aside right. and saying, oh, you're, you know, I'm sorry it's hard, but like God has a plan for you. Well, that's, the that's, lovely... bad, that's bad Christianity, isn't it? That's um... Yeah, it truly is. And there's a, there was a lovely saying that was said a lot uh, in my childhood. And unfortunately, I said it to a lot of people um, of God gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers, which is such bullshit. <laughs> right. But that was always like, there was never validation of just, hey, you're hurting. Yep. And that hurt is valid and it's real and I see it mm-hmm. and I'm sorry and I can't – I don't know if I can do anything to help you. I'd love to help you if you know how I can. I'm here in whatever way you need me. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to tell you that it's not real or that it's going to go away. And I remember um, I've dealt with depression since I was a kid and having uh, you know, people say, oh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I was yeah, like, well, fuck that. I don't see the light yeah. right now. <laughs> Yeah. So that's not helpful to me. It's like I I feel like dying. So I don't – it's not helpful to me that you think there's going to be a light at the end of this because yeah. I haven't seen it and it's not – that's not helpful. To, and to so like, I think that – Sorry. To, to, acknowledge no, how, to acknowledge how like if you can see how gross it is to say to a young person who is absolutely crippled by their own inner turmoil, you've got your whole life ahead of you. It's like – yeah. Just let's just take this person that like can't face the next hour and tell them like you should really book his, <laughs> you should really book yourself up because I'm old and you're young and you've got your whole life here. It's just like, is there anything yeah. more gross to say to somebody? It's like you are getting this wrong. Like, you know, um yeah, yeah, yeah. Even that's a good point of even like a lot of times when you're in that state, you don't want to even live to the next hour. Exactly. Let yeah. alone like your entire life. A lot of times the fact that you have your entire life ahead of you is daunting as fuck. Yeah. And it's like that's a source of anxiety in itself. Exactly. Um but yeah, and even I think it's yeah, the the there's a there is a lot of uh, patronizing language when it comes to mental health, and I think I was actually just talking about this. Um, I recorded an episode yesterday, and we were chatting about um, the difference between generations and how there's a lot of oh well, I had it worse than you, or yeah. oh I had it harder, 
And if we could all just stop with being so competitive and just instead of trying to compare someone's struggles to our own or compare them to maybe a struggle that we've seen, Mm -hmm. just to sit there and say, that's terrible. And I'm so sorry. Yeah. And I'm, I want to let you know that I hear you and I see you and I see your struggle and I don't know if I can help you in it. And if I can, please let me know how I can. Yeah. Or if you, if you need a hug or if you need to vent. Um, and I think just centering other people's needs in that compared to trying to center yourself in that moment can really drastically change how it's going to impact someone. Mm. Um, even if you're having, I was just talking to my therapist about this, about the fact that if I'm having a hard time and I'm venting with someone and they say, okay, so here's what you got to do. And they start <laughs> giving me a list of things that I need to fix. I'm like, okay, uh, uh, I just wanted to tell you how my life is terrible. Yep. And then for you to say, oh my God, your life is terrible. Yeah. And then we can move on. Yeah. And um, my dad actually does a great job at this. He, uh, and I didn't know he was a good listener until I was maybe like 18 because I, I would always go to other people and vent to them. And I vented to my dad at one point and he listened to me vent without saying a word for like two hours. I like, didn't say a word. And then he, I finished and I was like, you know, all heated and upset. And he goes, do you want advice? Do you need a hug? Or did you just need to talk about it? And then you want to be done. And I was like, um, I guess I can have advice. I think that's okay. And he was like, okay. And then we moved forward. And I was like, yeah, that was really helpful. (laughs) And I think if people can take someone else's struggles and once again, not center themselves like in that struggle and Mm -hmm. center other, the other person's needs. And that might be asking people questions. And I think that sometimes people think that if they just have the right thing to say, it makes them seem um, more intelligent or like they, they, you know, they are perfect in, with their language, but mm-hmm. it, it really does mean more to someone when you come to them and just say, how can I help you? Yeah. Compared to, I know how to help you. The yeah. intentionality of wanting to center their needs is, it means a lot more. Well, I think the most damaging thing is, um, you know, and it's similar it's similar to the racial appropriation thing of trying to put yourself in a position that you couldn't possibly put yourself in. So just don't. But the the difficult thing is, I think, and this is just something, if you can just accept that this isn't true, like if you if you don't struggle massively to from a functional point of view, from mental health, like where it with everybody's struggles in some uh, in some level but if you don't struggle to the point where you need to uh, to ask support from the world in some way let's say that's a marker of like i need to tell people i'm feeling this way at the very minimum like let's say that's a marker like just accept that it's not true that you you don't go through that stuff but you just don't vent it like the 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 thing is is like people come to you and say i'm feeling so this and that and i feel so lonely today and i'm telling you now 95% of people who hear that even the nice people think well i feel like that too i just don't complain about it it's like no that's not true it's like we all do feel lonely and we feel isolated and we feel persecuted sometimes and we 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 feel flashes of all these things but this person isn't dealing with it, like, um, and already to be able to deal with it and function and be okay 
means that you're not in the same place as that person. But I know so many people, especially from the generational thing, like that you're saying, where like you'll turn around, people will turn around to them and go like, I have postnatal depression with my baby, for example. And they'll say, well, I had that with my baby, but I just didn't complain because people just told me to pull it together. It's kind of just like, we're not saying that you didn't have that, but this person has decided they have to tell somebody because they can't deal with that. Like, and right. so just taking, take it as a massive advantage in this situation that you've gone through it. So you might be able to empathize in some smaller way, but I really just right. think so many people hearing about mental health think, I'm definitely as sad as you. It's just that I deal with it. So you need to just get your shit together. Like so many right. people, even if they don't say that, that's what they really think. It's just like, we all struggle just as much. Life is just as hard for all of us. But you, but you complain because you're like, you know, it's, you. if we can snap out of that, I really believe like the world will support, um, the world will start building the support networks that are needed for for mental health, really, which I know that is a big... From what I've read so far from the stuff that you've sent through, I know that seems to be, like, your angle on things as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's so... um, Yeah, this is ironically... I was chatting about this with a friend the other day. There's been a lot of the talk about... We all live the human experience but no one entirely understands someone's personal human experience. Yeah. And um, I, I I do think, yeah, a lot of times when people try to center themselves in other people's shit, <laughs> it's, it's them almost kind of having a little bit of a cry for help as well, where it's like, well, I didn't get that. And we kind of revert back to this like childlike state where you see your brother get a hug because he skinned his knee but you skinned your knee and you didn't get a hug. And it's kind of just like, oh, like shit, I yeah. needed I needed support too. <laughs> yeah. And so if anything, like be honored that that person feels safe enough around you to go to you and ask for support. Mm-hmm. And then instead of trying to center yourself and get in this defensive nature, maybe you just need to look at it as, well, maybe I actually do need some help with this. And maybe the reason why I'm feeling this defensive feeling or this bitter feeling is because there's a little bit of jealousy there. And I actually really do want support and love throughout these emotions that I have. And if you're in a space where someone, I've had situations where, um, you know, there's a friend going through something and then another friend comes to me and there's like a little bit of a gossip situation of like, oh, they're such a baby. And if anything, it's like, if you're in a space to try to comfort that person who is exhibiting this jealousy and this bitterness and this anger, maybe all they need to hear is, I'm really sorry that like you didn't feel like you you yep. got that. Like, can I give you a hug? Yeah. Can I support you in that? Yeah. And I think it's hard because you might not always be in a space to support someone, but I do think that so much of people's bitterness and anger and defensiveness and need to compare is like it really does stem from – like the just hurt. I think mm-hmm. almost everything stems from hurt, but yeah. it stems from this hurt and this left out feeling. And I think that that does, that is what stems from a lot of the generational comments when there's, yeah. well, I had it worse. And it's yeah. like, I think the best response to that, to the comment I had at worse is I'm so sorry. Yeah. And like, I'm so sorry that you went through that. And that is so incredibly awful. Um, I like, I would love to try to 
support you if you still need support through that, even if it was a long time ago. Yeah. But right now I do need support. Yeah. And I'm proud of myself for talking about it. But I completely validate your experiences and your experiences are valid as well. And your emotions are valid. And I'm sorry that no one ever told you that they were valid or that you deserve to be seen or heard. Yeah. Because I really do think it just all stems from from hurt. Yeah, it stems from hurt. And like you, like you say, comparison, you know, empathy and being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes as much as you can is great. But comparison is just pretty much always completely and utterly invalid. You know, I, I come from a very working class background but also a very working class mentality and i'm so grateful that was that what what was imprinted on me is if i wake up in the morning and i make myself a cup of tea and i stand on my balcony and look at the city with my cup of tea in my hand something was imprinted in me where i just go this is great and this is a great morning and i am so happy that i'm stood in my apartment with my studio in it that i love and i'm having this beautiful warm cup of english tea like i feel that like in a i feel uh, i'm very blessed to feel a lot of the time like an inner comfort with with exactly what i've got which does not apply to um which does not apply to material items or how much for financial stability or any of those things but that is the problem right here because like if you if you don't if you weren't blessed with that um then you just anything can be uh, uh, there's a scale where anything can be agony to anybody you know that's that's the point is like and that and here's the problem it's kind of like well how can this guy with this um, or this guy or girl with this amazing job and this beautiful family and all of this thing built around them how can they be depressed how can you know it's so unsituational um that is the problem is that like almost um mental health has now is now the new like the new biggest casualty of class division if you know what i mean because because it's kind of just like people really can't because how, as the classes separate more and more across the whole world and how as like poverty becomes worse and greed becomes worse it just becomes so you know, it just it just becomes so misbalanced from a support point of view. You know, it's it's so it's so bitter, isn't it? It's just kind of like, why would I try to help you in this situation because you have all this stuff and I have nothing? H- how are we going to yeah, win? People, we can't win there, right? Yeah, it seems like, and even just to close out this conversation too, like just in general, if someone's going through something, just like you don't need to evaluate their situation and, you know, do a measure it up to yours or try to figure out if they have the right to feel the way that they're feeling or, Oh, well they have all this in their life. It's just like, just let people feel what they need to feel. And obviously there's a line there where if what you're feeling is harming other people, now we have a problem. But if you're just having feelings, you're allowed to have feelings. Even if people don't feel like those feelings are valid or they're, you know, you don't deserve to have them because of your circumstance or because of whatever. They are valid. And I think that it a, a lot of it is just, like I said, so much we just center ourselves in so much shit that we don't need to center ourselves in. Yeah. We yeah. we make ourselves the the like the 
like the main character kind yeah. of of someone else's situation, which is just not necessary. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like this was a very beneficial conversation and also very fun for me to hear a little bit of the background of some of these songs that I've listened to for a really long time and that have meant a lot to me. Um, and I do have to say, uh, I, I do hold some bitterness towards you okay. for writing We Used to Be in Love because <laughs> it has fucked me up over every breakup that I have ever had in my life. Yeah. <laughs> it has made me – it is the this is the one song that if I'm going through a breakup, I can't touch. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I cannot touch this song. It's going to make it's gonna make me so sad. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to give you a chance to, to plug anything that you have to plug, any projects you guys coming up. I know you guys mentioned the album – um, this will be coming out on April 9th. So if you have any things that you can share with us. Wow. This is a weird, um, this is weird that this exact last five sentences just happened because, so the album's coming obviously and Mother's Milk, the third record that isn't digitally available now is coming in June, I think. But, um, in the same week that that happens at the very start of April, the original one mic demo of We Used to Be in Love is is being released. Um and that was Oh no way. Yeah, and that was a crazy song for us because we got flown around the world for kind of a year and a half to make that song because the record label had something in their head that they were going for and all kinds of big people mixed it and we made it four times and our souls were just destroyed trying to kind of achieve this thing and all of the passion that we ever wanted was just in this iPad demo made on the first day we ever wrote the song. We just pointed one mic at the band and we recorded this demo. And it kind of sounds terrible, but it's so much more emotional on every level than the version of We Used To Be In Love that you know. Um, so I can't wait to put that out. But that's coming out at the start of April. That'll just be on like Spotify and Bandcamp and stuff. And then, then we'll be very busy in the, in the tail end of the year. So hopefully... For some American listeners as well, there'll be. I'm guessing that early next year, at the at the latest, we'll be we'll be over and we'll be we'll be touring over there. Well, hell yeah, <laughs> we've wanted you guys over here for yeah. a while. Well, that's so you. ironic that that's the song that's going to be like dropping. That's <laughs> yeah. so funny. Yeah. Um. It, I I literally have to be so cautious about my headspace when I listen to that song. So I was like, I gotta be really fucking happy in my life to be able to listen to this song and be okay listening to it. Um, but thank you so much. It has been so nice chatting with you. Um, and I really do appreciate you taking time to come on. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Yeah. And, um, yeah, let's, um, anything you need, anything you need from me, just, you know, just, just give us a shout, you know, we're, we're here to kind of, open up the network of support like not just through music but you know we're people and that's what we try to get out in the song so we want to be we want to be accessible so you know feel free to give us a shout about anything well thank you i really appreciate that um well that is all the time we have for today thank you so much for listening and if you enjoyed the podcast please rate us five stars on itunes and leave us a review if you'd like you can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina Blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com. And to end our time, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath, and remember you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.